do very much appreciate the uh, very warm welcome I've received uh, this weekend. Um, I know how much uh, goes into uh, all the behind the scenes uh, logistics, and so a word of thanks at the end of the weekend. Part of the meaning of Sabbath is rest, and I suspect uh, a good number of you uh, uh, need some rest. Um, your hospitality has also been a very tangible reminder to me of God's presence. That it's even in places like Ithaca in the middle of February, God is here. Right? <laughs> you may take that for granted, as I often do myself. Somehow, grace needs to be amazing for us constantly. We come to this. Uh, the end of our sessions uh, together, and as we worship together, we turn our attention to this uh, great text in Colossians chapter 1, uh, uh, verses 15 to 20. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's printed there in the bulletin, inside front page. Let him or her who has ears to hear, hear this living word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. This is one of those Grand Canyon texts. You stand in awe before it. And every time you look at it, you see something else. But you're a little bit nervous about getting too close to the edge. This is one of those texts that invites us in. But once we're in, it's going to swallow us up. And so we stand before it. Uh, with a, a certain degree of humility. Uh, we need uh, not merely a sermon, probably a month's worth of sermons, but I suspect a billion years into eternity, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of this text. It's a good thing to be reminded that the beginning of our lives and the end of our lives are not the beginning and the end of all that we have uh, here before us in God. I was reading this past summer uh, uh, a very notable chronicle of the Bin Laden clan that we've come to know through the most notorious uh, of the children, Osama, and uh, Stephen Kroll's award-winning uh, book, uh, Chronicles uh, the clan from its earliest days at the beginning of the 19th century when they were Bedouin sheep herders uh, in Yemen, poor as dirt. Uh, and through a curious 
set of circumstances, Osama's grandfather, the patriarch of the clan, uh, left uh, home and headed towards Mecca. Uh, there was no uh, work left uh, shepherding, and so uh, he headed towards the city. Uh, Mecca in the early uh, 19, uh, 20th century was not much of a city. Uh, what we know has come in the last 50 years or so because of the oil boom. Uh, but uh, Osama's grandfather uh, parlayed his way into the uh, friendship, a business partnership with the uh, uh, founders of the Saud dynasty, uh, uh, the monarch of Saudi Arabia. Uh, over the years, uh, inherited uh, certain government contracts. Uh, his son, Osama's uh, father, uh, uh, built up the construction business of the bin Laden family to the uh, point in the 1970s. It was the largest construction firm in the world. Uh, overnight, virtually in a generation, they've gone from uh, peasant uh, shepherders uh, in uh, the hills of Yemen to the very seat and the corridor of power and affluence. Osama is in that third generation. He's the son of his father's fifth wife. He is the 13th of 54 sons. We don't know how many sisters he had. They don't count women uh, in the genealogies. A, a telling statement in many ways. Uh, but in that uh, uh, third generation of bin Laden's arose a deep set of conflicts that we experience in the West now, the, the, the experience of deep and abiding affluence and very thin uh, religion on the one side of the family and in the other side of the clan, a deep uh, resentment against wealth uh, uh, as a means to protect piety. I, I, I take this little detour as we open this text uh, because in in many ways, I think we uh, in, have inherited many of the similar sorts of social conflicts, though they're played out across, halfway across the globe. They're part of our lives also. Uh, that uh, in, a, in the span of a hundred years, uh, affluence is no longer merely in very small pockets of the West, but it is now distributed throughout. Uh, what we take for granted our grandparents couldn't have imagined. And we wrestle with the question, where does faith belong in a world like this? And too often it simply fits into a small compartment of our life. But unlike Osama and his kin, I want to suppose that the best way, if you will, of recovering the faith is not defending it, building a fortress around it, and keeping the barbarians out. But this text reminds us of an alternative, a third way, if you will, of a wisdom that ought to strike us as very strange and unconventional. A wisdom that takes our own foibles seriously. A wisdom uh, that calls forth giving ourselves before we find ourselves. 
The Apostle Paul, who writes this text for us, has called to mind the four great moments of Old Testament history, of Israel's history in the passage immediately before ours. Creation, and of the covenant making with Abram, the exodus out of Egypt and exile. And he leads us now into this text, a reminder that is Jesus who brings us out of exile. Now, most of us didn't suppose we were ever in exile, so what's the big deal? Even as Israel says time and again that we were never in bondage, how could it be that Jesus frees us from our slavery? Sometimes until we recognize our own imprisonment, do we fail to recognize how it is that we are freed from that prison. Too many of us suppose our own prison is the luxury resort that it looks okay. But it is Jesus who brings us out of exile. And the great problem of Israel's exile was they had no access to temple. Uh, There was no ordinary church on the corner to which they could go. In exile, uh, access to temple was long uh, forgotten. For to find the presence of the living God, which was their hope after all, that God was with them, was to be near temple, where God was. The strange irony, of course, that we celebrate even here, this resurrection day, this Sabbath day, is that we have been given temple in Jesus. That the fullness of God's presence is here, even in Ithaca, New York, in February. And that the restrictions to the access to God have been removed. This is Paul's great story he's narrating for us here. That God has come to us, contrary to our expectations, that we need to find him. He has found us in Christ. The key text uh, 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 in this passage uh, I want to focus on this morning in verse 17. That in Christ... All things hold together. Let me repeat that. In him, that is Jesus, all, not some, all, eight times we have that little word, pawn, in this text. Everything. Be a sermon in itself just to preach about this emphasis. Everything holds together in him. All of life, all of time, holds together. He is the glue, or a a metaphor. He is a sponge which soaks up all the water that's been spilled and gives it shape. So much of our lives seem like spilled water and chaos. But we're drawn into uh, Jesus as water is drawn into a sponge. And there we find order and purpose. 
Paul doesn't immediately turn to the questions of the church's uh, uh, conflicts and problems. And the little church at Colossae, like the little churches in Ithaca or in Boston, uh, had plenty of problems. But the Apostle Paul doesn't immediately turn to them. He turns rather and frames the whole of their dilemma by focusing on Jesus. In him, all things hold together. Christ's work in that sense is not partial. Jesus doesn't do some and you do the rest. The end result of this sermon is not, I can tell you ahead of time, is not go out and be better. Be nicer. Be kinder. Be more generous. All of those are probably true. But that's not the point here. You need to find that Jesus is your all in all. Not some of it. He is all. to tell my students that there's no really good questions we ever ask that finally, at the end of the day, aren't answered in Jesus. The problem is often finding how they get answered in Christ. Too often we find the simple answers. I want to caution you against that. But I do want to suppose that Jesus is that in which all of life makes sense. We've been talking this weekend about our identities as bearers of the image of God. We are mirrors, this uh, interesting metaphor that we find ourselves in the reflection of God. That's what the language of image means. It's like a mirror. And a mirror points at something else. It finds its kind of oomph, to use a technical term, in God. Also, we were talking between services, a sense in which it also reflects God to a watching world. Kind of an angled mirror, maybe. Or maybe after the fall, a, a kind of distorted mirror, those funny mirrors you find at the circus, you know, that make you very, uh, or, you know, you know those mirrors. We're like, but we do reflect. We reflect something outside of ourselves. That's inevitable. We are not our own reason for existence, we are not our own significance. We cannot create it and we will not find it. It's in Christ alone that we find ourselves. Our temptation is, is it not, as we detailed yesterday, that that, uh, to mix the metaphor, the image has made another image in its own image and tried to find its significance in the mirror, which mirrors the mirror. You, you can't, it's hard to get your head around that, I, I know, actually. But if you put a mirror in front of a mirror, what do you see? Not much. Right? That's-